today, since I stood in this pulpit and preached on this exegetical series from the book of Revelation that was begun going on, I think, seven years ago. So uh, we've plotted very slowly and shortly over the years, and it's been a joy to come in and out and to piggyback upon what uh, your elders have been teaching and some of the other exegetical studies and books of the New Testament. So um, I want to just, we're in chapter 20. The last time I was here, I think it was June 1st, we finished verse 6, and it was just this week that I posted the last of these sermons on the iTunes podcast or on the website, so if you want to go back, it's up there. And we're going to resume this morning. We kind of stopped in the middle of something last time. So for the sake of review, uh, I'd like to just start at the beginning of the chapter and we'll read down through verse 7. So I'd like to get into verse 7 this morning and I want to focus upon the word in chapters, I mean verse 7, the word expired or fulfilled or accomplished. Because it tells us that this future reign of Christ as a purpose, it's of necessity literal by virtue of the term that is used here, especially in the original language when we look at it. So we're going to focus on the first part of verse 7 today, and then before we finish our discussion of the millennium in the next weeks, I'd like to zoom out and talk about the, the, some snapshots from what we have awaiting us in the millennial kingdom. Some things from the Old Testament, some of the primary Old Testament millennial passages, as well as some other uh, details that are found amidst other larger prophecies. So when we talk about the millennium, and we talk about it being a literal future reign of Christ, we're not isolating a few passages from the book of Revelation. The millennial reign of Christ of Messiah is talked about multiple times in the Old Testament. In fact, a lot of the prophecies we look to this time of year that foreshadow the first coming of Messiah are tied inextricably to his second coming. The Old Testament's prophets spoke of the first and second advents together. And oftentimes, something as simple as a punctuation mark, a comma, or a colon in the Old Testament prophecies separates the two comings. Even some of the carols we sing this time of year, we associate with Christmas, like joy to the world. That's not talking about the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. That is celebrating the future kingdom of Christ here on earth that was guaranteed the day the prophet spoke of. That was confirmed and assured the day the baby was born in Bethlehem. So we can't separate the first advent and the second advent of Christ except in terms of time. We can look back upon Christ's first advent. And that first advent guarantees his second advent. In fact, the prophecy that was read this morning from Isaiah chapter 53, it actually starts in terms of Christ, the servant of God, and his suffering and his ransom, it actually starts a few verses back at the end of chapter 52. And then as you get into chapter 54, that suffering servant and his payment for sin 
guarantees a future rejoicing of the nation of Israel in his kingdom. And the prophet goes right into that in chapter 54. But let's, for the sake of review, uh, let's just start in chapter 20. What I would, I'm going to be reading some scripture passages that are rather lengthy this morning from the Old Testament. And so I'm going to ask some of you all to help me with that. Um, chapter 20, verse 1. This is following the great battle of Armageddon, following the arrest and casting of the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist and his false prophet, alive into the lake of fire. And then we see in chapter 20, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So here we have this period of time, a thousand years. And I want you to note that this delineating period, this description of, in terms of time is mentioned six times here. Satan, that old serpent linking him back with Genesis chapter 3, is bound a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years. Here we have thousand years connected to a definite article. It's a specific period of time. The thousand years should be fulfilled. If something is fulfilled or needs to be fulfilled, then that means it has a purpose. It has a specific purpose. And after that, after the thousand years, at the end of that period of time which serves a specific purpose, he must be loosed for a little season. The word loose there means set loose. Not escaping. Set loose. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. The last time I spoke with you back in June, we talked about the two companies that will execute governmental authority during this kingdom of Messiah. Those that sat in judicial authority, those that is the Gentile church, the primarily Gentile church, that is the church. Jews and Gentiles, the body of Christ, will have judicial authority. Judgment was given unto them. Jesus foreshadows this in the parables he talk, tells about the talents. Uh, in, in the Gospels. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. That's the tribulation saints. That's the second company. Which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, nor had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Here we have a thousand again. These two companies... The church, bearing judicial authority over the nations, and those that were beheaded during the tribulation, the tribulation saints, bearing executive authority, Messiah's deep state, per se, will live and reign with Christ for a thousand-year period. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years. Here again we have that definite article. 
In Greek, it's the word kilia. If you ever hear the word kiliast, or somebody's a kiliast, that means they're a believer in the millennium. It's the Greek word for a thousand. So kiliasm has something to do with the millennium. The word we use kilometer in English used to be kiliometer. It meant a thousand meters, but that's been adjusted or evolved over years. We just say kilometer. So that word comes from this passage in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Ta kilia, the thousand years. It's a specific period. When you look at it in the original language, it can't be referring to just some random symbol. The rest of the dead didn't live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy, or blessed and set apart for a specific purpose, is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God... And of Christ, that's the tribulation saints, priest, executive authority, and of Christ, and shall reign, the church, judicial authority, with him a thousand years. I talked last time about the first resurrection. The first resurrection, the resurrection, uh, the first fruits, Christ, the Old Testament saints that came up out of the graves there in the gospel, the harvest. The great body of Jews and Gentiles, which is the church, resurrected at the rapture, and then the gleanings of that harvest. Like what Ruth and her companions went through the fields to gather after the harvest had been gathered. What was left over. That's the tribulation saints. These take part in the first resurrection. They're raised to have a new body, an eternal spiritual body, in the millennium and reign with Christ a thousand years. We talked about the rest of the dead. Those that were dead. Those that died. Your loved ones. Our political leaders. Whoever it may be. Down through the ages. From Cain all the way down to today. Those who die don't live again until the end of this period. At which time they experience the second resurrection. The resurrection of the damnation. We'll see this at the end of chapter 20. That terminology, the rest of the dead, means or implies that there's others besides the church and the tribulation saints that actually live during this period. We talked last time about the four unresurrected groups that will continue in the millennium over whom Christ and His saints will reign <coughs> There'll be those who don't receive the mark of the beast and somehow escape the Antichrist. They just don't get caught or killed. Daniel chapter 11 speaks of those that escape. There'll be nations who helped the Jews. Jesus refers to these in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. That is when the Son of Man sits upon His own throne, the throne of David, judging nations. Not on his father's throne, judging believers, the judgment seat of Christ. Or at the great white throne, judging the dead. Those nations who helped the Jews during this time of great persecution. Um, continue, are allowed to continue on and enter into the kingdom. Those who survived and persecuted the Jewish people and refused to help. Just like the Edomites of old. 
They'll get capital punishment at the hands of Messiah. The third group that continues is the Jewish remnant, those that actually survived the time of Jacob's trouble. Isaiah 6 tells us it's a tenth. The remnant is just a tenth, a small portion. Zechariah tells us it's a third of those that will be living in the land. It's interesting or intriguing that today when you look at the world's Jewish population versus the population that lives in the nation of Israel, a third of the population living in the nation of Israel is roughly a tenth of the world's Jewish population. So that's how those numbers go together. This Jewish remnant continuing into the millennium is referenced in Isaiah chapter 11. Then there will be children born to those in the millennium, born to these other groups who actually grow up in the millennial kingdom with the old Adam's nature. Zechariah chapter 8 speaks of girls and boys playing in the streets of Jerusalem. Isaiah 65 tells us one who dies at 100 years old during that time will be considered just a child. Ezekiel 47 speaks of God's one-state solution in the millennium in which Gentiles will live amongst the Jews and will begat children amongst them. So there will be those who begat children. There will continue to be people living on this earth who are unresurrected, who have the old Adam's nature, who live under the authority and reign of Christ, and these will begat children. And the earth will return much to what it used to be prior to the flood and people will live to great ages. All of these things are spelled out. So we kind of talked about the first resurrection and these unresurrected groups. And we got to verse 7. And where I concluded, verse 7, And when the thousand years, here again we have the thousand years, it's a specific period of time, are expired. That means at the end, when they are fulfilled, Satan will be set loose out of his prison. So at the end of my last message, we talked briefly about verse 7. And I want to zero in today on this word, expired. That word in the original language is also translated accomplished or fulfilled. And the nature of this word necessitates a literal understanding of this period of time. There are many who teach that the thousand years, we would call these post-millennialists or amillennialists. Matthew's been talking a little bit about that these last few weeks. They would deny a future millennial reign of Christ, a literal thousand-year period. They would argue that these things are deep symbols. Some would say that all of these prophecies were fulfilled in AD 70, and that talks of the sun going dark and words that describe the new moon turning to blood. That's just the way people describe things back then. It's not literal. And yet these same would also teach that when Christ came the first time, he fulfilled all those prophecies literally. So it's amazing the hypocrisy there. Amillennialism would teach that it's all just symbols. An amillennialist is like a biblical agnostic. He would argue that we just can't really know. You can't really know. And yet appeal to prophecy that you can't really know when debating atheists or debating Muslims or whatever uh, they do um, often. 
However, it's not just that thousand years is mentioned multiple times in these six or seven verses. It's associated with a definite article. And when God's Word says something that many times in that short of a space, it's meant to be understood exactly like it says. And this word here, expired or fulfilled or accomplished, necessitates that. For something to be fulfilled or to need to be accomplished, it can't just be some deep, dark secret that we can't really know about. This is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ that will take place in the future. As premillennialists, anybody that reads the Scripture as a common man and accepts it to mean what it says is by default a premillennialist. The apostles, the early church fathers were premillennialists. They looked toward a future coming of Messiah to fix things on this planet and to physically and bodily reign here. Now within the camp of premillennialism, which means that the earth's going to get worse and worse, and then Christ's going to come back before the millennium. That's premillennialism. Within these camps are believers that actually disagree about the timing of the rapture of the church. But make no mistake, a pre-trib believer, a mid-trib or a post-trib that has to do with the tribulation, who debates over the timing of the rapture, they would all be premillennialists. They wouldn't be amillennials or postmillennials. They would all believe that Christ is coming to set up a kingdom, literally and bodily, but they disagree about the timing of the rapture. Like, I believe, a clear, common man reading and understanding of the scriptures in, in terms of what it says literally within its context. The Bible's not dark secrets. It's given to us to study. God tells us to study. So if we're told to study to show ourselves approved unto God, that means we can know what it's talking about. We don't need a priest or some scholar or some great debater to tell us what it means. The preacher stands up here to, to declare God's word and give the sense to help you, but you don't need me to come to an understanding of it. God's given his word to you. You don't need me as the mediator. Okay? So when we look at the scriptures... From that perspective, I believe that a millennium, a literal millennium in which there is a future restoration of the Jewish people according to God's promises, a time in which the church literally reigns with Christ, this is, as we say in Spanish, que obvio, it's obvious. And I would say the same thing about the timing of the rapture. I know believers that would disagree with me on that, but when you study the scriptures in its context, it's obvious that Christ coming for His church precedes the wrath of God that falls upon Israel and the Gentiles just prior to Christ's coming. And when He does come, we come with Him. And there's a literal kingdom. So we don't need as Christians to be looking toward our politicians or looking toward a political party or looking toward a future election or a MAGA or whatever you want to call it. We don't need to be looking for these things to fix this world. They're not going to fix this world. There's as, there's as much confusion spiritually in the MAGA camp, in the, in the conservative Republican camp in America today as there is in the left side of the aisle. There's just as much confusion about what the real problems are in this country. Our country has a spiritual problem, and we as Christians should do our duty to be good citizens 
and to pray for our leaders and to stand up for what's right, not caving in like the Chick-fil-A's of the world who claim to be standing for such righteous causes. It's always been a farce, my friends. It's always been a farce. But we're not to be like this. We're to sit back, do our duty, but put our hope in the coming of Messiah. We don't need a president. We don't need a Trump re-election to fix the spiritual problems of this country. We need a Messiah to come back. And that really ought to be our hope. Some of these political fights are worth getting into, but a lot of them we need to just stand back and realize we have the true hope, the true answer. But this is a literal period of time that has a purpose. When the thousand years are expired, that means they last a specific time for a specific purpose. The question then is this. What does a thousand year reign of Christ in this present creation that is fallen, that will involve unresurrected peoples who continue to have the Adamic nature, what would this possibly fulfill or accomplish? What is its purpose? That's the question we ought to ask. And what I'd like to do today for the time we have remaining is to go back to the Old Testament. And I think some of the things that God demanded of the nation of Israel will serve uh, to highlight or shed light on the answer to this question. So we're going to read some lengthier passages of Scripture. It's always good to go back and look at the Old Testament. Because everything written in the New Testament is based upon the foundation of the Old. They're not separate entities. In fact, when we house or host Israelis overseas uh, in our ministry, and I know folks are coming over, I'll often make sure that there's a few things very visible when they come in the room. And I want them to see that we're a friend of Israel, that we fear the God of Israel. So we'll take steps to make sure that's obvious when someone walks in the room. But one of the things I like to show is I'll have a copy of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what the Jews call the Tanakh. And I want it sitting in a very prominent place. And then sitting on top of it, I'll have a Hebrew New Testament, what's called the Greek Kadashah, the very thing that Jeremiah prophesied God would one day give to the people of Israel. The day's coming when I will make a new covenant. That word there is the same words printed on the cover of the New Testament. That's what God did. And I have it, it's often smaller in size, and I'll have it sitting catty corner atop a Tanakh. And you might think, wow, that's kind of, wouldn't that offend a Jewish person? Here you've got a New Testament sitting on top of a Tanakh. Well, I don't care if it offends God's Word and offends somebody. I'm not going to make an apology that the New Testament is part of the Bible. But I believe that picture is, an, is, 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 a, is a teacher. It teaches something. And what it gives me the, and it's funny how the eyes are always drawn there. And I kind of watch and people are kind of looking and trying to see what is that all about? And then I can enter in and say, you know, I want to explain to you why that is there like this. And it's an opportunity for me to explain that the Hebrew Scriptures, we Christians believe every word of the Old Testament. We believe it. It's God's Word. It is the foundation 
No building can stand without a strong foundation. However, a foundation that just sits by itself out in the field serves no purpose. A foundation is built so that a building or an edifice can be erected atop it. And then I explained to them that I believe the New Testament is the building erected upon that foundation. As you see here, you see this large Tanakh with the New Testament on top of it. So what we believe as Christians from your Jewish New Testament is simply the fulfillment or the building erected upon that foundation. If we take that foundation out, that building cannot stand. So it's an interesting analogy to use to say, hey, the New Testament's not some Catholic book that's full of popes and rosaries and, 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 and saints and a persecution manual about how Gentiles can persecute Jews. It's not that at all. It's a very Jewish book, and it's the fulfillment of what was written in your law, in your prophets, in your psalms. But we as Christians would do well to study the Old Testament and look to it as we parse these things, because it is the foundation upon which the New Testament is erected. So to answer the question about the millennium, I want to go back and I want to look at some things God commanded Israel with regard to the land. Okay? So Israel was given the promised land. And there were some things they were expected to do when they lived there. Much of it they didn't do. And that's part of the reason they were taken out of that land for 70 years at the hand of the king of Babylon. But what we see God telling Israel to do with the land is a foreshadowing of things that would be ultimately fulfilled with regard to the earth with regard to the land in its fullness that God promised to Abraham, Israel has never possessed a tract of land that was promised to Abraham from the Euphrates to the Nile. They will possess it in the millennium. So I think some of these principles, God never did anything for no reason. The law, the moral law is clear. It's written on our hearts. The judgments are things written that men in their logic would naturally come to by virtue of their conscience. And in the statutes, there's things in God's law that were put there that transcend our understanding. But they're put there and Israel was commanded to observe it for no other reason than because God's word said so. It was a test of their faith. Leviticus chapter 25. Let's turn there. In Leviticus chapter 23, we have God laying out through Moses the feast of Israel that they were to celebrate. The spring feast and the fall feast. And it's very intriguing that all of these were, are fulfilled in Messiah. Messiah fulfilled the three spring feasts, or the four spring feasts, when he came the first time. He, he was crucified on Passover. He was buried in unleavened bread. He rose on the Feast of Firstfruits, and the Spirit of God came down on the Feast of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. The fall feasts include the uh, uh, Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those feasts just ended over in Israel. It's a very um, busy time. We don't go there during that time because things are really expensive. 
A lot of things shut down. The Jewish people will celebrate Hanukkah later this month. That points to something that took that transpired during the period of time between the Testaments. It's something based upon those traditions. Uh, Jesus actually went and celebrated the Feast of Hanukkah when it tells us he went to Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication in the Gospels. Uh, that was the Feast of Hanukkah, and that's when he preached about being the light of the world. So it's very, it's very interesting to see that. But that's what we have in Leviticus 23. And then uh, um, in chapter 24, God talks about the pure oil that's to be used in the tabernacle. He talks about the showbread and uh, the holiness of his name and the seriousness of the sin of blasphemy. Then we get to chapter 25. And this is what God tells the people concerning the land they are to go to. Now keep in mind, they wouldn't get to this land for another 38 years, 38 to 40 years, because they're not going to believe God. They're going to whine and moan about, this, about the giants in the land, and the spies are going to bring back the Lord. So they're going to walk around in the desert because of their failure to trust the Lord. But this is what they were supposed to do when they came into the promised land. So I want to ask someone to read Leviticus 25, the first seven verses. Uh, let me make sure here. Yes, the first seven verses. Matthew, would you read that? And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, you shall, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither thy field nor prune thy vineyard. That that which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest thou shalt not reap. Neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the Lord. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meet for you, for thee, and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle, and for the beasts that are in thy land, shall all the very simple. God told Israel, when you come into the land, sow and plow the land and grow crops for six years. But the seventh year, you're to allow the land to rest. That means you don't sow crops in the seventh year. You just let the land grow. You let it grow. And then in the eighth year, you'll resume sowing crops. Now, science... Modern science has confirmed that this actually has value. Um, it's a value principle of continued productivity. Soil can be overused. You know, we've seen this. This has been a problem in a lot of third world countries where soil will be overused and they'll never rotate crops. And as a result, stuff doesn't grow anymore. And so people will go in and teach these uh, cultures how to rotate crops and do different things to rotate around their fields so that the land can rest. So these things have a scientific value in terms of agriculture. But God told Israel to let the land rest. That was important. You know, when God tells us to do something, whether we think it's important or not, really is irrelevant. When God says it's important, we do well not to minimize it. You know, even on the right here in America, we have people that say a lot of good things. 
I mean, the president himself says a lot of good things. He stands or claims to stand for good things. He's done a lot to speak out, at least in support of Christians, in support of Israel. He said things with regard to aborted babies. But at the end of the day, here in America, we're still slaughtering our unborn. We're still watching men and men get married. We're seeing people make a mockery of the natural order. These things are continuing to happen. And God doesn't just overlook it because the president said some good things about Israel. God just doesn't overlook the slaughter of our unborn babies because our president said that Judea and Samaria belong to Israel. God doesn't overlook the debauchery and the sodomy in this country simply because the president and the vice president brought home a persecuted pastor that was imprisoned in Turkey. God's not overlooking those things. God expects things of a nation that claims to follow Him, whether we think it's important or not. You know, Israel in the northern kingdom had some kings that actually did some righteous things and showed some faith. Jehu the king was raised up out of obscurity and did exactly what God told him to do. He cut off the house of Ahab. He cut off the wicked part of the kingdom of Judah that was connected to Ahab. And he removed Baal worship from the land. Completely removed it. And then he boasted about his zeal for the Lord. As he was driving down the road there in his chariot, his friend came up. He said, come up here. I want to go show you my zeal for the Lord. Look what I've done. But what continued to happen in Israel? They continued to go to those calves that Jeroboam had erected in Bethel and Dan. And Jehu's legacy, despite all of this zeal for the Lord, was he continued in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that made Israel to sin. So these things are important. God didn't tell Israel to do this and then think, ah, oh, it's no big deal if they don't. So they're to give the land... A Sabbath rest. If you go down to chapter 25, verses 20 and, and forward, we're going to see why. Why, primarily, aside from the scientific value in terms of productivity, this is what God says. And if you shall say, in verse 20, what will we eat in the seventh year? In other words, if we're not going to plan anything in the sixth year and we're to let the land rest, what are we going to eat? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. God says, you don't need to worry about that, because if you follow what I say, my commandments, I will bless your sixth year, and it will yield a harvest to cover three years. That means it will give you a harvest for the sixth year, It'll take care of the seventh year in which you're to let the land rest. And it'll take care of that part of the eighth year that you're going to have to use to re-sow the fields and wait for the harvest to come in. Verse 22, And you will sow the eighth year and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year. Until her fruits come in, you will eat of the old store. The land shall not be sold forever. This is very important. For the land is mine. The land of Israel is not, does not belong to the Jewish people. Now you would think, wow, what are you talking about? 
It doesn't belong to the Jewish people. It's God's land. He has leased it to them. He has put it in their stewardship. It's theirs in the sense that they're leasing it from God. But it's God's land. And that's why God can allow the Gentiles to trample His land, to wake up His people who have rebelled against Him if He wants to. God's going to allow Antichrist to rise and come into the land and take away from Israel everything they've built since 1948 because she so foolishly thinks she has done it. He's going to teach them that without Him they can do nothing. And it's His land. And since it's his land, it's going to fulfill exactly what he appointed it to fulfill, one way or another. And he's going to send his Messiah to rule over his land. That land doesn't belong to the Palestinians. It doesn't belong to the, to the Jewish people in the sense that they own it. They don't own it. They lease it from the one who gave it to him, which is God. The same can be said of the world. Psalm uh, 24 says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We don't own this planet. You know, I kind of laugh at all the, uh, the talk of global warming and climate change. The fallacy of all that is not that there won't be climate change. The Bible speaks of those things being signs of the end. The fallacy is that they actually think they're, that we're the ones causing it. They actually think that we're causing climate change when the earth itself could swallow us up if it wanted to. I mean, go build a mansion and then leave it there and never tend the land. And who swallows who? It's the earth that swallows the house. But climate change is biblical. It's just not man-made climate change. It's God-caused climate change. That's the fallacy. But the earth is the Lord's. Man doesn't destroy what God ordains for a purpose. And this world will continue and survive the tribulation. And it will fulfill a purpose during Christ's millennial reign. Only after that purpose is fulfilled will God destroy it. And then make a new heaven and a new earth. But the land was God's. And Israel was told to not sow in the seventh year. Give the land a Sabbath rest. Well, what are we going to eat? You don't need to worry about that. I will provide for you. So primarily, aside from the agricultural value, God told them to do this as a test of faith. It's a test of faith. Are you going to trust me, or are you going to come in the land and get everything going and start doing your thing and forget about me bringing you out of Egypt and think that you are in control? It was a test of faith. And God expected Israel to do what he said. It was a test of faith. We can see the importance of it because Israel today came back into the land in 1948, survived some of the amazing wars and attacks against them. And time has gone by. Yes, there's problems. Yes, there's rockets. But Israel has built up their buildings. And it's amazing to see all the technology and the, the infrastructure. And they're to a place now where God's just something we talk about because it's tradition. They think they've done it. They think we don't need God. It's us that came back here and rebuilt after the Holocaust. I had a, a young man tell me that. Why should I believe God? It was, my, it was my fathers that survived and came back here and built this. We did it. Spoke it right out of his own mouth. 
They never learn. You know, it would only be a fool. We would be fools to look at his, Israel's, Israel's history and judge Israel. A fool looks at Israel's history and judges her. A wise man looks at it and learns from it. So I don't stand here in judgment because I know what America is. I know my need for a Savior, but we can look at it and learn from it. Bob has a shirt on under his button-up plaid today. It's got a great statement on the back in terms of the, in the context of the American Civil War. Only a fool judges history. A wise man learns from it. We do well to remember that, not only with regard to Israel, but with regard to our own history. But the earth, I mean, the land was told, it was commanded of God that the land would enjoy a Sabbath rest. And then we get into chapter 26 of Leviticus. And in the first 13 verses, God tells the people that there will be earthly blessings for their obedience. If they obey the Lord in these statutes and judgments, there will be earthly blessings that come. And then you get to verse 13 through 39, and then you see there are consequences for disobedience. Look, obey my statutes and judgments. You don't need to necessarily know why they're there. And I will bless you. These are earthly blessings that will come. You can trust me. But if you disobey, there will be consequences. And then at the end of the chapter, the last six verses with regard to Israel, despite their consequences, there is ultimately future restoration. So when we look at passages like this in the Old Testament, we as Gentiles who live amongst a Gentile nation that God has raised up and blessed since its founding, we would do well to learn from these things and ask, what does this say about us? We'd be fools to judge Israel. But we need to remember there's a profound difference between Israel and the United States. Israel is promised an end of blessing and restoration. None of that is promised to the Gentile nation. The Gentile nations in Daniel 2, that, that stone cut without hands that Nebuchadnezzar saw, crashes into that image that represents all Gentile kingdoms and obliterates them. And the Gentile powers are scattered like the chaff, like dust on the wind. That's the future of Gentile kingdoms, the United States and Korea. Our own founding fathers, when they established this nation, knew that it best it was temporary. They knew it could not last forever because the heart of man is corrupt. They knew that the laws and the Constitution would work very well if they governed a moral people. But when the people ceased to be moral, it, it was useless. They foresaw these days. We were just fools. We judged our founding fathers instead of learning from what they told us. But here we see Israel's promised blessing for obedience, chapter 26, consequences for disobedience, and yet a promise of future restoration according to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now when we read things like this about Israel's history and about what God did do or would do, it would behoove us to think about our own nation and our own lives. Paul tells us two very important things in the New Testament. And I taught our team Yeshua about this. Mackenzie might remember. The Old Testament for us as Gentile believers serves two primary purposes. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, you can go look that up on your own time, that the things that happened in the Old Testament are written for our admonition. They are written to us as a warning. In other words, they're a warning to how God deals with sin and unfaithfulness, particularly in a nation that once knew God. So much of the Old Testament ought to be a warning to us here in America. Paul also tells us in Romans 15, 4, a second primary purpose of those things written down before. They are written for our learning that we can have patience and hope for the future. So they have a twofold purpose. It's a double-edged sword to warn us and yet to comfort us, to show us that God is faithful and He keeps His promises. So let's not be about judging Israel. Let's be about learning. Let's be about heeding the warnings and let's be about putting our hope in the promises of God because Israel's future restoration is tied to us, the church, as well. We're a part of that. And we live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So understanding those things, that to read chapters like this is both an, an admonition and a, a source of encouragement, we, we're part of this country. We may not believe or buy into this garbage that's destroying the country, but we're still part of it. So we would do well to heed, understanding that our fate, eventually, the fate of this nation is the, fate, the same fate that Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome faced. That's our ultimate fate. It's not that of Israel. So our hope and loyalty is in the Jewish Messiah. It's not in our nation. But we would do well to consider and heed. So I want to read a few verses here in Leviticus chapter 26 because they're enlightening. And they address again this matter of the land. And in fact, much of this is prophecy. Here, Moses is not only telling Israel what will happen, but it tells Israel what's going to happen to you down the road because you're not going to obey these things. It's amazingly prophetic. So, I want you to think about our nation today as we read a little bit of Israel's history here. Leviticus chapter 26. We're going to read verses 13 through 39. This is the consequences for disobedience. Now keep in mind this is a nation that knew God and knew what He expected. We are that as well. So let's, let's think about these things. Chapter 26 verse 13. I am the Lord you God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke, and I made you go upright. But if you will not hearken unto me, and do these commandments, if you will despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I will do this, I also will do this unto you. In other words, this is what's going to happen to you. I will appoint you over you terror, consumption, and the burning aug. The burning aug is like when you get smoke in your eyes. You just can't, you can't see. That shall consume your eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you will sow your seed in vain, for your enemies will eat it. 
Now, if you know about the history of Israel from this point all the way down to the present day, this is over and over and over again what has happened. And I will set my face against you, and you will be slain before your enemies. They that hate you will reign over you. Think about us today. Those that hate us reign over us. If you think these fools sitting in these congressional committees that want to bring down the president are motivated by their hatred for him, you're wrong. They hate us. They hate the church. They hate Christians. They hate those who believe in the Constitution and freedom. And they hate every single person that voted for the president. They hate us. And they reign over us. And they get away with things that they shouldn't get away with in a sane society. They're able to break the law. And yet if we do, we get capital punishment for the least little thing. Our enemies hate us and they reign over us. Is this because of them? No, this is God's judgment. This is what happens when God judges a nation. You will flee when no man pursues you. That is our nation to its eve. When innocent people are being hurt in a public setting, what do people do? They pull out their phones or they, they flee. Nobody wants to help. We're afraid of all this stuff. What about my Social Security or my health insurance and all this? And we sit on our butts afraid half the time. And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, verse 18, then I will punish you seven more times for your sins. When we see what God promises here about seven times, there's a study we could do that shows how important May of 1948 was in terms of Israel's being reborn as a nation and the, length, and, and the number of years from Israel's judgment to the present day. This passage plays into that. I'm not going to get into that now. But it's a very interesting prophecy that was fulfilled to a T. And I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. And your strength that shall be spent in vain how much of our strength, our military strength in this country is spent in vain? We still have soldiers dying in Afghanistan. Why? In vain. It's not because of stupid leaders. It's because of God's judgment. These are the things that happen. Your land shall not yield or increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. And if you walk contrary to me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. Go study all the strange missing children cases all over this country. Some of them in the most unlikely of places. I think there are wild beasts that rob us of our children right now in this country, but we don't want to talk about it. We don't believe that anything negative could possibly be the wrath of God. You know, any pastor worth his salt in California right now would would be talking about the fires being the wrath of God. We need to repent. But oh no, it's this or this or this or it's got this reason or that reason. God's a God of love. He'd never do anything like this. And if you will not, beasts that will rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in number and your highways will be desolate. And if you will not be reformed by me by these things, in other words, if you won't repent, but continue to walk contrary unto me, then I'm going to walk contrary unto you. And I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you 
and shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send a pestilence among you. Man, we have pestilences popping up in Los Angeles right now. Man, it's tent cities and homeless everywhere. And diseases that have been eradicated from this country are popping up again. We want to blame the homeless or the immigration. Well, those are symptoms, but these are things God does to a nation that wants to move him, but turn us back upon him. You will be delivered into the hand of the enemy. This country's been invaded by foreigners who don't want to live like us, who don't want to assimilate amongst us, who want to change our way of life. God's judgment. This is what God does to a nation that turns its back upon us. And when I have broken the staff of your bread, verse 26, ten women shall break your bed in one oven, and they shall deliver you your bread again by way, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And if for all of this you will not hearken or listen unto me, but continue to walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will. In a sense, we do the same thing because the, the aborted uh, body parts of our unborn babies in this country go into our makeup and the things you paste on your face. We're eating our own children and we don't even know it. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your images and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols and my soul shall abhor you. Is it possible for God to abhor a nation that once believed upon Him? Absolutely. That's the God of the Bible. And I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries into desolation. And I will not let, I will not smell the savor of your sweet others. You keep sacrificing them. I'm not going to smell them. You keep praying unto me, but you turn your back upon me. The heavens brass. I'm not going to hear. It's a joke when these politicians, particularly these Democratic politicians, who talk about how serious this impeachment process is. And we're, we're prayerfully proceeding. And I'm praying. You, you're, give me a break. God doesn't hear your prayers. He that turns his ear away from hearing God's word, even his prayer is an abomination. It's possible to pray to God, to the God of the Bible, and be in sin. Because you have no desire whatsoever to follow his word. Or to believe it. And yet we think if we just pray to him, uh, uh, he's going to hear. I have a friend who's a pastor, and he has a, an uncle that is an outspoken, just ultra-feminine feminine homosexual. Just, just a ridiculous individual. And he posts all this stuff online. It's kind of a joke. We kind of get a kick out of it. And he talks about, you know, wanting prayers for this and prayers for that. It's just a joke. God doesn't hear your prayers. Just because you pray to God doesn't mean he listens. You know, most of, the, most of the people in this country, when they pray to God, they're not praying to God, they're praying to Baal. And just like those prophets on Mount Carmel, he can't hear. He can't hear. Their God can't hear. When we abort our babies in this country, we're sacrificing them to Moloch. The gods that these Democrats talk about praying to is Moloch, the god of, god of child sacrifice. These people aren't worshiping the god of the Bible, and their gods can't hear. 
And I will bring the land, verse 32, into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you amongst the heathen, and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your city's waste. Here Moses is telling the people what's going to happen to you. And it did happen to them. It did happen to them. This was in the, this was uh, 1921 B.C. would have been uh, when the Exodus happened. Israel was first taken captive in 605 B.C. And then the temple was destroyed in 586. And they were scattered to the nations. So here Moses is speaking of things that would happen over a thousand years later. And it happened. This is prophecy. He's warning them. And even with this warning, they didn't listen. We're no different. Then, when I scatter you from the land, your land is desolate. Then, verse 34, then will the land enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, and you be in your enemy's land, even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbath. So here we have God through His prophet telling people, you're not going to do what I just commanded you to do. But the land is going to rest one way or another. If you won't let it rest, then I'll make sure it rests because I'm going to pull you out of it and scatter you to the heathen. And that's exactly what God did with the Babylonian captivity. That's why it happened, we're going to learn later. So here we see the resting of the land, the people observing what God told them to do, there in chapter 25 of being very important and their failure to do so would be one of the reasons God judges them and pulls them out. We don't let our land rest around here in the sense that we're so busy and we go about doing everything and we don't ever rest in anything. I mean, I don't necessarily remember this in my generation, but many of you guys remember nothing used to be open on Sunday. People weren't out mowing yards and things like that. And I'm not trying to suggest that we need to obey some Levitical understanding of the Old Testament law. But God values rest. And as Christians, we have rest in Christ, spiritual rest. Why doesn't that translate into our physical life? It really should. It really should. Half of the health problems in this country are because of the stress associated with the refusal to rest properly. We're in bondage. We're slaves to our jobs, to our health insurance. You know, we want to judge our southern forefathers and the matter of the Civil War over slavery when we're too blind to see that we're slaves today. And the slavery we experience in, under our bosses and these CEOs and these companies and under our health insurance plans is far worse than the slavery that took place on southern plantations. Because even in that there was rest. Even in that there was a job for life and food and what came from the land. And I'm not trying to suggest something was good when there was plenty of evil associated with it. But again, a fool judges history instead of learning from it. We like to judge people that lived in difficult times and made difficult decisions instead of trying to learn from it. And we're guilty of the same things. And it's even worse. We're intended as believers to live free and to enjoy God's blessings. But we won't do it because we don't rest. And we're obsessed with it. But rest is important to God. And it was important where the land was concerned. And he's gonna, it's going to rest, he tells Israel, one way or another. And then he goes on to say in verse 36, And upon them that are left alive of you, I will send a faintness into their hearts and the lands of their enemies. And the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them. 
That's America today. America is so weak. A leaf shakes and someone's offended. It's God's judgment. And they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none even pursues them. And they shall fall upon one another as it were before a sword. When none pursueth, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the heathen, and the land of your enemies will eat you up. And they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. This is Israel's history spoken prophetically in a nutshell. From the days that Joshua and the elders that outlived him died all the way to the present day, this is Israel's history in a nutshell prophesied ahead of time in detail. This is our legacy if we turn our back on God. Because God judges nations. However, God made a covenant if you go and read the rest of the chapter. But if they will confess their iniquity, I'm not going to read it, God's going to restore them. So as sure as these things would happen prophetically, so would the restoration. The reason I read all of these things is to emphasize that there are things that we may not think are a big deal, but they're a big deal to God. And allowing the land to rest was a big deal to him. And this plays into, I believe, one of the main purposes of the millennium. I'm not going to get to it today. But we can learn from these things, and we ought to be those that study the Old Testament. Instead of judging the people of Israel, learning from them. That's why we are where we are today as a church and as a nation. We don't know our history. We don't care about it. We only care about ourselves. And we're reaping these things because these are the things that God, a God who judges nations, does. Particularly upon nations that once knew Him and then turned their back upon Him. If we go down toward these last few verses that talk about restoration guaranteed in the future, verses 42 and 43 are interesting. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham. Will I remember and I will remember the land. Make no mistake, a big part of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant that was made with Abraham, that was affirmed in Isaac, not in Ishmael, and that was confirmed to Jacob, the father of the twelve sons of Israel, whose name was changed to Israel, not in Esau, was the land. A tract of land. And God says here that He will remember that covenant and He'll remember the land. So in spite of your disobediences, I'm not going to forget the land, which is mine. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. God didn't forsake Israel. He hasn't forsaken His covenant, as some who teach amillennial and postmillennialism believe, replacement theology. He's going to remember the land. The land, verse 33, also shall be left of them and shall enjoy her Sabbaths while she lieth desolate without them. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity because even because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And then he goes on to talk about how he will remember their covenant of their, that he made with their ancestors. These are the statutes and judgments of laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel. And there in Mount Sinai. And a big part of this was just prophecy of what would happen. Not a bunch of rules, but prophecy of what's going to happen to you because you will disobey me, but I'm going to remember my covenant. 
And here we see that the land's rest was important to God and it was tied directly to the unconditional covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's important. And Israel was to observe it. Unfortunately, she did not. I know we've been kind of stopping at um, 12.30. Let me just preach for a couple more minutes and get to a good stopping place. Let's jump forward out of Leviticus in the time of Moses. Exodus was approximately 1921 B.C. And so uh, Israel roamed around in the desert and uh, for 40 years. And then Joshua came into the land uh, in, in the late 1400s B.C. Um, I'm sorry, not 1921. That's when, I've said 1921 BC a few times. That's when Abraham, I believe, came in to the land of Canaan, or maybe that was the flood. I've got to go. I don't have my chronological notes. It was 1491 BC that uh, uh, the Exodus happened. 1491. It was 480 years before Solomon began construction of the temple. So if I've said 1921 today, I mean 1491. That was wrong. Anyway, let's look at Jeremiah for a minute. We're going to telescope down from 1491 to approximately 605 B.C. So about 900 years. Jeremiah 25. Verses 1 through 14. Daniel, can I get you to read that this morning? Yeah. 25, 1 through 14? Yes. <clears throat> the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, the which Jeremiah... The prophet spake unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is, the three and twentieth year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Turn ye again now, every one from his evil way, and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, 
my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and an hissing and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. And it shall come to pass when the seventy years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. Okay. So here we have the prophet Jeremiah. This chapter 25, verse 1, is very important in terms of setting biblical chronology. It's one of three major bridges in the Bible that links biblical history with what is established secular history that's been verified and determined by astronomical uh, astrological astronomical not astrological I can't say it's been confirmed by things observed in uh, astronomy and this is one of them. We learn here that the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, was the same as the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? That's one of those three bridges that helps us establish exactly when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And when we know that, we can take the Bible and specific data and go all the way back and date creation to 4004 B.C. And so this is one of those bridges that equates the fourth year of Jehoiakim with the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, his accession year. And so there are there, were, there was an eclipse and something else that was observed in those times that confirms the first, when Nebuchadnezzar ascended to the throne. So that's a very important verse in that light. But here we see Jeremiah. He is in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which would have been 605 B.C. And he's telling the people, look, I've been preaching to you since uh, uh, the 13th year of Josiah. So I've been preaching to you since 628 B.C. I've been preaching to you the last 13 years. And now we're in the year that the first group of captives is getting ready to be taken to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come through and scoop up a group and take them captive. Does anybody know what important person... And Israel, of Israel was taken in that first captivity? Ezekiel? No. Daniel. He comes later. Daniel. Daniel was with that group of youths that was taken the first time. So here we are, Nebuchadnezzar saying, look, I mean, uh, Jeremiah's like, I've been preaching to you for 23 years, and you haven't listened. God's going to take you captive. You have not turned away from your sin. It's interesting, Jeremiah started preaching in the 13th year of Josiah. And Josiah was one of the only kings. He's the only man spoken of in the entire Bible that says, serve the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was a righteous king. And we're told in the eighth year, eighth year of his reign, 
when he was 16 years old, he began to seek God. He began seeking God. In the 12th year of his reign, he begins to purge the land of idols. It was his first reform. And this lasted until the 18th year of his reign. So he began to seek God when he was 16 years old. When he was 20 years old, he started getting rid of idols in the land. So he was doing some very good things. Far better than even the good things that Trump is doing. But when did Jeremiah start preaching? Repent. Turn from your evil ways. Jeremiah didn't start going to Josiah rallies. He came out on the street and started pointing the finger at the people and at the king in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. When he, when he was 21. So after the king began to seek God, after the people started purging the land, then God sent his prophet and called him to repentance because it wasn't enough. And that's we ought to learn from that as Christians today. We shouldn't be going to Trump rallies and, and brain MAGA MAGA like sheep. The place of the church is to point its finger. I like an old image I saw of Nathan the prophet and David the king is sitting on the throne and he's got his finger pointed at the king. You are the man. Proverbially, my finger ought to be pointed at the president as a Christian ambassador for Christ. Not because I'm righteous, but to say what you're doing is not enough. Babies are still being slaughtered. You fail to see that this nation's problem is a spiritual problem. You need to call these people to repentance. That'd be following the example of God's prophet, even after the king had done some good things. And then we see the king really steps it up after that and is really used of God. And he doesn't have to live to see the things that are going to happen now. But Jeremiah is preaching, and nobody's listening. And um, I just uh, lost my little sheet here. Okay. Nobody's listening. And then we read through this chapter, and we read this message here in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, and we see that God is going to do what? what what's God going to do to Israel? He's going to send Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going to be taken from this land, and you're going to serve Nebuchadnezzar, or you're going to serve the Babylonians for how many years? Seventy years. So here the prophet says, all right, you haven't listened. And so now I'm going to send in the king of Babylon. He's going to take you away, and you're going to serve him for 70 years. So we have a 70-year period of captivity that is going to be Israel's punishment. And it says in verse 11, and the whole land shall be a desolation. That word desolation is important when it's connected with 70 in this judgment. Because there's a reason why it was 70 years. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a random number. It was tied directly to what God told the people of Israel to do back in Leviticus. So I'm going to stop there today. Um, we're going to pick up next week. I want to show you a couple more passages in Jeremiah. Second Chronicles, written after the captivity, looks back on Israel's history and does what we should do, learns from it. It tells the why. The books of Kings often tell the what. The Chronicles tell the why. And it tells us exactly why Israel was out of that land for 70 years, exactly why they were captive for 70 years, exactly why the temple laid as a desolation for 70 years, and it all had to do with the land. The land was going to have its rest 
one way or another. And then we want to look at Daniel. We're going to see how this was fulfilled to the year. But we're going to see that Israel, after she actually built the temple, and Solomon stood up there and prayed that prayer, and all of those things, how quickly Israel should have continued carrying out God's law, and they didn't. They didn't. Her failure to keep the land Sabbath began when the temple was built under Solomon, and that failure continued down all the way to the day that the second temple was rededicated so that the land could enjoy her Sabbath. So God's creation getting its rest is very important to Him. It was important to Him in the land of Israel, and we're going to see that it's important as far as this present creation is concerned. And I believe that is why one of the primary purposes of this millennial period is God's rest for His creation. So I won't, I won't give away too much. Um, we'll try to get through that. It's very interesting when we look at the calendar today. And we can come to the conclusion, guys, that the Bible tells us we can't know the day or the hour. We can't. And we'd be fools to try to pinpoint it. But we can know the season. We can know when it's approaching. And as a, as a Jewish believing friend of mine once said, Jesus isn't standing at the door, but he's coming down the hall. He's close. Christ is coming soon. Let's don't put our hope in this nation. Let's, let's do our duty. Let's pray for our leaders. Let's seek revival. Let's seek something along the lines of what happened in Israel under the reign of Josiah. Things turned around for a little bit, a reprieve. God can do it, but that's not our hope. Our hope is not in the stars and stripes. It's in the diadem. It's the star that came to, uh, uh, to, to, to Bethlehem and the scepter that comes to Israel. That is our hope. And it will happen. And the kingdom that he's bringing will be a kingdom of rest. Well, this earth will exist as it was meant to be. And so it won't always be that you can't go to, to Yellowstone or to the Grand Canyon and, and have trouble finding a parking place. It's not always going to be like that. One day's coming when all that garbage that we have to deal with today is gone. I mean, more than half the world's population is going to be eradicated in the tribulation anyway. Now, I'm not saying that to laugh, but it's true. God's going to punish this world. And this world is going to enjoy her Sabbath rest under the ruling hand of the second Adam as it should have done with the first Adam, one way or another. It's going to. And that is our hope. That is our anchor for the soul. So I'm going to stop here today. I'm sorry I went a little bit long. It's really good to be back with you all. And, and I, I don't want to get too complicated here. I think I have in the past. This isn't a seminary class. I'm not trying to make it that way. But I am trying to dive into some things that hopefully you'll find interesting. And you may want to study further. I don't profess to have all the answers. But I've studied the scriptures. And when my study takes me off, down a road that leads to Leviticus, I feel obligated to do the same for you. Amen. And so, um, uh, hopefully you see how it ties together. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day and for your word. Thank you that your word stands true forever. And that even when we don't understand it, we can believe it and trust it. Help us to be as you commanded Israel to be, to obey you whether we understand you or not, or your reasoning or not, but as a trust for you, just like Abraham. He didn't understand why you would ask him to go sacrifice Isaac, but he was obedient and willing. And you demonstrated 
that you were testing his faith. And because he passed that test, Lord, he was blessed. Help us to be those in these dark days that trust you, that pray for our leaders, that seek for the good of this nation, but don't put our trust and our hope in it. Because we know that the problems we have and that this world has, we cannot fix. We need a Messiah. We need a Messiah. Israel needs their Messiah. We need the Messiah. We need that kingdom. And we look forward to that day when we can live and reign with you for a thousand years. And Father, we pray for the meal. We pray that it would bless us and nourish us. May our fellowship be a strength of encouragement. Thank you for every one of these believers. I pray for these children. May they will grow up to serve you. And, and, and be faithful unto you in days far darker than we enjoyed, than we uh, uh, lived in as children. So, uh, Lord, thank you for this Lord's Day. May we find rest in our fellowship with each other and with our families. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.